Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Miradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Washington closed down on Friday after two strong weeks. President Biden has used the G20 in India. Uh, That Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin both skipped to advance his strategic agenda of bringing nations together to collectively stand up to China's intimidation and uh, to ensure better deterrence and continue to pressure uh, Russia in the wake of its Ukraine uh, war. Uh, The FAA has a new boss. The Pentagon has a new approach to mass producing unmanned aircraft in vast quantities as Anduril unveiled its new uh, Fury long range Mach 0.95 unmanned fighter aircraft. Poland awarded Kongsberg a $2 billion contract for new missiles, and Ukraine continues to make battlefield gains as Walter Isaacson's new book on Elon Musk discloses that the tech titan blocked Starlink signals, thwarting a major Ukrainian attack on Russia's Black Sea fleet, prompting major questions about the role of privately held commercial infrastructure with military applications. And a look ahead at the Air Force Association's annual airspace cyber conference and trade show outside Washington and the DSCI trade show in London, both of which we will be covering. Joining us today, as they do every week, to discuss all this and more are Dr. Rakadron Epstein of Bank of America Securities, Sash Tuza of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners, and joining us from the M4, uh, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy. Everybody, uh, welcome to the program. Uh, thanks so very much for uh, joining us. Thank you very much indeed for having us, as always. Great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Always great to be on, Vago. Thank you. Uh, thanks very much uh, to all of you, uh, indeed. And Ron, uh, I want to get to the idea of the Ron jet. You've proposed uh, what Boeing should be doing uh, for uh, its uh, next uh, 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 aircraft, the replacement uh, to uh, the uh, or its response to the A321 uh, Neo, uh, which is a very innovative approach. But we're going to get to that in a minute. First, walk us through markets and how the group uh, performed relative. Right, it was kind of a, a, a tough week on the street. Uh, some profit taking after two up weeks, but you know, how did the group perform and what were the big drivers? Yeah, the the, uh, the group largely underperformed the market. Uh, the S and P was down uh, about one point three percent. If you look across uh, aerospace and defense, uh, both sides were were more than that. Uh, to just give you a, a feel, if you go across the large caps, Boeing was down about five and a half percent. Lockheed Martin was down about five and a half percent. Northrop Grumman down about three percent. Raytheon a little over three percent. GD almost four percent. Kind of gives you a feel for kind of, kind of what was going on. Uh, probably the worst performer uh, in my coverage this week was Spirit Aerosystems. It was down almost twelve percent. Uh, and uh, on Lockheed, I'm certain we'll talk about it. it. It was down more than most of the other defense names, largely because of the news on the Tech Refresh 3 getting kind of delayed and pushed out into to next year. Uh, if you look at the VIX, surprisingly, the VIX index really didn't move all that much this week. It was a little over 13, and it was a little over 13 last week. 10-year yield, about the same, about four and a quarter percent. That's where it was about a week ago. Uh, Brent crude was about 90 last week, still is about 90, although WTI is creeping up. And, you know, the gap between Brent and WTI is usually about five bucks this week. It's only three and WTI is uh, 87. Uh, so it was sort of a real mixed currents on the on the week. It was a, it was, it was a tougher week um, broadly for the market. Um, it, you know, this tends to be sometimes maybe a little more tough period of the year. 
everybody's kind of a back to school, you know, everybody's back in the office. Right. And then if you look at what's going on on the calendar in terms of investor conferences in this two week period in the industrial space, there's three or four industrial conferences going on. So there's a lot of management teams saying a lot of things to a bunch of people. Uh, and that all kind of has to get digested by the market. So I would expect some volatility here over the next couple of weeks as the market's figuring out what's going on. Um, and uh, we're going to talk uh, a little bit more about uh, the Tech Refresh 3. Obviously, that's the most desirable, right? I mean, that's sort of the goal and the block four aircraft and all of that uh, that's tied up in it, right? I mean, the U.S. Air Force has even said we're reluctant to buy the current generation of the F-35. We want to have the next uh, generation. And this program is billions of dollars uh, over over uh, budget. What's the message uh, that Lockheed had uh, to you guys uh, about why we are where we are Um and, and when it's going to get back on, right? I mean, and, and the financial impact, both on the company, but also on the customer. Yeah, basically everything kind of got pushed into next year. Um, so deliveries this year will be lighter than what they originally had anticipated. Um, because deliveries are largely paid for on a percent of accounting, you know, percent of completion basis, um, the impact on financials, it's not like, you know, Boeing pushing out 25 deliveries because they get a lot of the money on delivery. A lot of this, a lot of the stuff is already prepaid for, but there is a financial impact, uh, and it you know it impacts them and it impacts L three Harris, who's doing a lot of the work on the Tech Refresh three and and other suppliers. But it it appears that this is you know kind of a more difficult task than maybe the street was led to believe, and maybe it was pitched pitched to industry. But uh, at this point, everything's just kind of getting pushed into next year. Uh, and as I recall, it's like sort of sixteen point five billion or something like that. Uh, in in terms of what the government has has announced in terms of um, the the overage on it, even though this is really the next generation and the airplane and the model of the airplane that realizes its uh, potential, even though it it will require at some point a new power plant uh, in in order to be able to generate that kind of power and performance. Uh, I'm going to break a regular order sash and and with your forbearance, just go to Richard really quickly. What does what does this news uh, mean? Right, I mean we're going into AFA, uh, which is uh, the U.S. Air Force. Forces flagship annual uh, event, um, and we, you know, heard from leadership. We had uh, Secretary uh, Kendall joined us last week on the Air Power podcast to give us a little bit of a preview. He's looking at a reorganization of the Air Force uh, to make it more sort of fit for purpose, if I can use a British phrase uh, on this. How what 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 do you see in the the Lockheed announcement, Richard, and what does it mean uh, for the program? And Sash, if you want to take a bite on that, out of that. Uh, as well, uh, you're you're welcome. So we kind of get this cl- clear this deck before we get to everything else. Go ahead. Yeah, you know, obviously it's unwelcome news because you know the objective was to get to 156, and if they do 100 this year, I think it would be a decent achievement given the latest developments. You know, the market needs, right, frankly, right now, several hundred. <laughs> um, it's what's unfortunate about it is it doesn't look like they can go ahead and build additional aircraft and wait for some sort of TR3 download upgrade package to be installed and then surge above 156 next year. If the guidance is still, well, maybe next year we'll get to 156. So there's no catch up here. So not only does the market not get what it wants, which has implications from a national security standpoint for about 18 or 20 countries, but there's also implications for Lockheed Martin. There's a feeling that they should be making hay while the proverbial sun shines, because eventually Air Force cash is going to switch towards NGAD. Other countries are going to switch towards their other priorities. 
every indigenous fighter under the sun or whatever else, new programs. So the idea is for the next 10 years to get to 156, maybe even to 170, 180 with additional resources. So anything that slows that progress is total, you know, means that the total program will have a little less success in aggregate. Uh, Sash, uh, your sense on uh, the impact of all of this on the program and and European and global interest in it, which remains astonishingly high, right? I mean, we're, we're having so many people buy this jet that we're not even covering all of them as promptly as we need to, even though we try really hard uh, to do that. Well, this is the problem, isn't it? I mean, they're not actually buying the jet, they're ordering it, and then it's not being delivered. And, um, okay, uh, I, I think Richard's absolutely right. Next 10 years, there's nowhere else to go. But beyond 10 years, boy, there's going to be a lot of options. They'll all be, they'll be very, very differentiated. Uh, but uh, if Rocky can't deliver the aircraft over, over the next 10 years, they will start to lose a, a, a chunk of the market, particularly in, uh, particularly in Europe, but also um, in, in the Far East as well. And, and so I think this is a, you know, this is a concern. This does, um, uh, you know, TR3 does give the aircraft the, the capabilities that have always been promised. So this, this goes uh, right to uh, what was on the PowerPoint, effectively, you know, a decade or so ago. Um, it's not that the F-35 is, is not a very, very capable aircraft now, but air forces have been waiting for the promised capability, in some cases for a very long time. And uh, the fact that, you know, there's so little warning before this uh, news comes out, that, that's not the way to, uh, to play it. It's only because it's a monopoly product now that you can get away with this sort of underperformance. Um, let me uh, take you to uh, markets, give us uh, sort of a European sense, right? I mean, folks have re-entered uh, the universe uh, to uh, sort of uh, mess with the French phrase, re-entry uh, has been achieved. Uh, how did markets perform and how, the group, uh, how did the group perform against the broader market? And what were the was, drivers was... from your standpoint? Yeah, it, it was a very, very slow start uh, to the week. But, you know, the, 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 there was quite a difference in performance between defence and civil stocks. Civil stocks were basically flat to down. And uh, the stocks that were sort of dragging it down were, um, it, you know, basically MCU was down 2.7%. There is some concern, particularly because of the continued um, uh, comments about problems, not just with supply of engine components, but also supply of engine components within the repair and overhaul aftermarket. There's a, 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 a UK-based uh, part supplier that I had never heard of before the beginning of this week, but apparently has been supplying parts that are falsified uh, and have no proper documentation. That That's a concern for overhauls of uh, CFM 56s and uh, some general electric engines. So there's just a worry that the Aero engine aftermarket has got some significant problems with it. Um, and, uh, you know, that's really starting to drag the uh, aero engine companies down quite significantly. I mean, you know, Safran was you know, flat, flat, but it really should be performing a lot better than that. By contrast, defense was up about a percent. And the standout performers there have been the mid caps. Why? I think the DSCI show in London really does focus. Uh, the, the mid caps get a much louder shout there than they do at the the, the big air shows, Paris and uh, Farnborough. Paris and Farnborough dominated by the large OEMs. DSCI really does allow mid caps from across Europe and the US to uh, to uh, to play to their strong suit. And so 
Kemmering was up three and a half percent. They're doing a, um, a share buyback as well. That's doing them no harm. Um, Leonardo up two and a half. Um, but the standout performer uh, was Kongsberg, the Norwegian defence company, up 7% last week. And that was because they got a huge order from Poland for the um, NSM anti-ship missile for coastal defence. Uh, this is a near $2 billion order. And um, it seems to me that what the uh, polls are doing is putting in place a coastal defence capability that will pretty much seal up their side of the Baltic and uh, seal up Kaliningrad as well. If they are, have got batteries of NSM missiles, which remember in, in the US service is the Raytheon-led uh, JSM uh, missile, but Kongsberg originally invented it and they they, they marketed it for coastal defence purposes. Um, if the Poles have got batteries of those, right. uh, they can make Kaliningrad pretty much inaccessible to, to any sort of surface ships. Uh, so this is a huge escalation. It's another huge order from Poland. I mean, where the Poles are going to get the money from, it'll be fascinating five to ten years to watch. Um, because, and I, I may be quite hard for it to be a taxpayer in Poland for a while because they are writing some huge checks here. But in terms of you know, escalation of capabilities in the naval domain, this is one of the most significant purchases that we've seen for a very long time. And it's a huge feather in Kongsberg's cap. NSM is looking to be the dominant anti-ship missile now. And remember, 10 years ago even, but certainly 20 years ago, this would have been a, a, a surefire win for Harpoon uh, in its um, surface, surface land launch uh, variant. But that's just left the market now. So NSM owns it, and it's a very, very good missile. Kongsberg is doing fantastically. And just a quick word from our sponsors, Bell Sponsors, our daily podcast, HII Sponsors, our global coverage, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems Sponsors, our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications Sponsors, our command and control coverage, GE Aerospace Sponsors, our air and naval coverage, and Spirit Aerosystems Defense and Space is sponsoring our coverage of the Air Force Association's Airspace Cyber Conference and Trade Show uh, outside Washington, D.C. That begins uh, tomorrow on Monday and runs through uh, Wednesday. Uh, Ron, uh, well, that, Richard, just very briefly, uh, Michael Whitaker uh, being tapped uh, for FAA uh, administrator before we get to the Ron Jet. Uh, any, anything to say, right? I mean, a longtime uh, senior official and a known uh, commodity uh, what is it that we can uh, expect uh, from him? Uh, and, you know, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see whether he gets confirmed or not. Uh, but also, uh, what are the major tasks that are going to fall on his plate? Yeah, you know, it was um, astonishing to see all of the voices of, uh, you know, the various stakeholders cheering his, uh, his appointment, um, some of whom are, you know, divergent from each other, some of whom are somewhat opposed, unions and airlines and whoever else. Clearly, you know, everyone is eagerly awaiting somebody with uh, a lot of experience, 30 something years of experience in the aviation industry from many different perspectives who can provide stability because it's been some time before we've since we've had that. Um, and of course, you solve some of the many pressing problems, whether it's air traffic control and air traffic controllers and various other talent related issues and uh, getting things sorted out. Uh, especially for the part that government can do. Again, air traffic control and certification and regulatory issues and whatever else. What's kind of interesting is that his most recent job is as, uh, I believe, chief uh, operating officer or commercial officer at Supernal, which is uh, Hyundai's entry into the EV toll stakes. 
Uh, some people have read that that's going to, you know, put an emphasis on some of the certification challenges associated with all of these new air vehicles. Um, me personally, I, I hope not, <laughs> uh, just because I tend to think that's, you know, going to be a somewhat oversold market by a wide margin. But on the other hand, there are different air vehicles and certifi certifying things on time and getting the resources needed to certify things on time is a major challenge. So I'll join the chorus that says this is very welcome news. Uh, out, outstanding. And uh, we uh, wish Mr. Whitaker uh, all the best in the process uh, to uh, get uh, get through what is, uh, you know, obviously a very difficult political environment. OK, Ron, uh, you've been uh, very uh, just uh, one one last uh, thing. Uh, because I uh, did sort of derail the show because of the importance of TR3 and Lockheed's statement. Um, any of the fiscal uncertainty connecting at all? I ask you this question every week. Any questions about shutdowns, continuing resolution, budget outlook, Ukraine supplemental or anything else from investors this week? Not materially different than previous weeks, right? Okay. <laughs> so yeah, this week is no different from all other weeks. Okay, very good. Okay. Uh, so uh, Ron Jett, explain to us uh, the Ron Jet, which could very well be the salvation of the Boeing uh, company. Uh, it is uh, different. You uh, are absorbing some of the themes that they said that they wanted uh, in this new sort of seven, right middle of the market airplane, the 757 kind of replacement space. Uh, and you're trying to do it innovatively if they're going to uh, achieve uh, their sustainability goals uh, and, and green it out. Walk us through what this airplane uh, should look like. What does the Ron Jet look like? So the, so the idea here is, you know, bringing forward technologies that either already exist or are in pretty close to existing, right? So this is not a hydrogen-powered aircraft. Um, this isn't an airplane that runs on just batteries. Or, um, however, it does use a lot of technologies that are nearly available or currently available. The concept is uh, a family of airplanes that would cover. A reasonable swath of the market, call it the high end of the narrow body market, and and, and then some. Uh, you know, call it nominally maybe a 225 seat airplane, plus or minus 50 seats or so. Uh, it's um, uh, a circular cross section. Uh, we set it up so it's a single. How I call it? It's a narrow body, but it's not a single aisle. So it's just uh, a little bit wider than uh, what you think about as a as a single aisle today but it's actually two seats, an aisle, two seats, an aisle, two seats. Uh, the idea there is a couple of things. One, most importantly to the airlines, you can turn the airplane quicker on the ground. And then right. secondarily for passengers, since the cross-section of the 737 uh, traces itself all the way back to the 707, and that cross-section traces itself back to uh, Americans that were, you know, that were born and grew up in the depression and ended up being just smaller beings than they are today outside of other nutritional factors and Twinkies and, you know, big gulps. Um, <laughs> the, so there's no middle seat. There, there is also more nutritional food in there, but right. I understand what you're, what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. An extra right. pencil of seat room is, is not really what's making or breaking the modern American. Yeah. And, 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 and if, you know, if you think birth. about the interior of, you know, the, the three, three, one, three, it came into being when most aircraft flew with a load factor of maybe 60%, right? So right. the middle seat was really like a flow over seat occasionally used or whatever, not like right. the load factors you see today. That, be that as it's made, this thing. So it's a, you know, a, a, a cross section that's a little bit different, uh, but not wildly different. The wing is, it's a high wing. 
uh, and we, you know, put on it a um, unducted fan. Uh, the idea being with unducted fans and a high wing using modern materials with that cross section, um, you could probably get something like 40% better efficiency out of it. Uh, and this isn't, you know, a moonshot per se. Um, this isn't based on, you know, um, on obtainium or whatever you want to call it. Um, this is all stuff that could be tech ready, you know, within the next several years, uh, something that could be launched, call it in the, you know, 26, 27, 28 timeframe uh, and brought to market sometime uh, early next decade. Uh, and um, that that's what we think the company should do. Uh, I know there's a big focus on fixing the balance sheet and ramping up the uh, current demand for 7.3s and all that. But the reality of the 7.3, and uh, this is a point I made when I presented this, we uh, you know uh, published this report on Thursday. If you think about um, the 737's entry into service and entered into service in 1968 with Lufthansa. And in 1968, the number one selling car in North America was the Ford Mustang and the Motor Trend Car of the Year was the Pontiac GTO. Uh, if you look at today's Mustang, it has nothing to do with the Mustang from back then. Uh, and if you imagine a, you know, a 1968 Mustang with an updated engine and uh, some updated stuff in the dashboard, that's kind of what the 737 is today. Right. Uh, it's the only modern transport airplane that does not have a fly-by-wire control system. That is the standard today. Uh, you know, the 737 is rigged up like a bicycle with cables all over the place. And even bicycles today, you can get... Um, electric derailers and braking systems. So even the modern right. bicycle today is a fly-by-wire system. So, you know, you know, the venerable 737, I would argue, is really full-on served its purpose. Um, if you look at all the miles flown and everything on the aircraft, it's been a pretty impressive machine, but the time has come to move on. Uh, and and get to that right, little bit bigger form factor, try to get that speed, try to get that efficiency and all, all the other factors uh, that everybody's looking for. And again, you know, when you're in a single aisle airplane, it, you know what I mean? You can get people off that airplane only so, you know, as quickly as people can pull the luggage out of that, you know, and get their coats and check for their phones and uh, everything else. So having more regress routes certainly would, would help on that. Uh, Richard, uh, your sense on uh, the brilliance of the Ron jet uh, and why it's imperative uh, for the Boeing um, uh, leadership uh, to embrace it. And Sash, want to get your sense uh, as well. And, and what uh, the aircraft that Ron is proposing, uh, you know, compares to what uh, some of the studies and things that we're seeing from Airbus uh, look like. Go ahead, Richard. Yeah, I mean, brilliance indeed. As a matter of fact, I was at the uh, Aerospace Industries Association of Michigan uh, conference in Detroit when I when Ron unveiled it for what I believe in public to be the first time. Well done, Ron. Uh, and he was asked um, by a colleague of mine, you know, what's the street going to think of this? The only thing I'm going to disagree with Ron is he said, I think the street will hate it. I don't think so. Uh, I, I know he's a lot closer to the street than I am, but I'm going to I'm going to get out my animal spirits reading card here and say, look, this is such a good idea. And a lot of people see commercial activity in a year or two. They're going to be selling it if they launch it. You know, you get ATO, then, of course, you get sales. And when sales come in, a lot of people buy on sales. Ron can, of course, contradict me on this. But I think when they start getting two to one in their favor instead of two to one in Airbus's favor, that's going to have a, a galvanizing impact. Uh, but again, not the not the stock reader, just guessing here. But also, frankly, I think there are a lot of people in the street who, you know, when 
Brian West, as he did the other day, came out and said, yeah, more losses coming on the program. They associate that with, you know, frankly, a de-emphasis of engineering and technical excellence that we've associated with uh, Boeing's leadership in recent years. That's not good at all. And if they were to say, well, actually, we're going to become an engineering company again, do something really new, far-reaching, impressive, you know, something they haven't done in decades now, um, since the 787 was launched in 2004, I think there are a lot of people who will say, wow, maybe they can turn a new turn a corner, you know, and actually return to those days of executing right and maybe even hire the kind of engineering workforce that they used to have. Uh, so I, I'm not so sure Ron is right about that. Everything else, I think it's a wonderful design. I think it's fascinating. I'm really intrigued by prop fans, which, of course, this uses High aspect right. ratio, high wing, a lot of stuff going on here that I think really needs to be looked at. Um, and uh, I would uh, point out that, Ron, uh, going back some uh, ways, you said it would have to be a higher wing in order to be able to take advantage of the newer engine uh, tech uh, technologies and, you know, bigger fans and, and the like, as opposed to having the problem with the 737, which is basically it's just too close to the ground and that caused a lot of the problems uh obviously with the max uh line sash uh your your sense on this um i think this will give airbus a run for its money i think this it, it is the sort of thing that airbus would not want to see launched because they've been able to uh, you know frankly uh start to move towards you know if not monopoly profits certainly you know segment leader pro uh, profitability uh and not tr have to try terribly hard and you know, nobody wants to start a new R&D um, uh, competition cycle again because it just costs a lot of money. So, you know, this is this is the sort of proposal that will put the most pressure on uh, Airbus. I don't think they would be able to respond very credibly just with what's sometimes been referred to as the A322, which is um, a uh, likely a re-winged uh, aircraft with a composite wing um, and uh, probably a uh, quite a heavily pipped version of the Bratton Whitney uh, geared turbofan underneath it, underneath it, or even the Leap. Um, I don't think that would be terribly competitive uh, against against the Ronjet at all. And that's something that worry Airbus. That would mean they would have to, uh, I think, really start to spend serious money. Now, they could afford it, but still, you know, they never want to do it. My only question, actually, uh, is on the unducted fan. Um, historically, unducted fans uh, were... You know, when when all the trial installations were done, tended to be put on the uh, back end of the aircraft, somewhere somewhere on the tail, because they were. And I remember it personally, as does my colleague Nick Cunningham, incredibly noisy. Uh, you know, and we've pretty much recovered from the genesis now, but only just. Um, I wonder whether an unducted fan under the wing, where you have the greatest risk in terms of uh, any sort of blade off situation and where the noise is the greatest in the cabin. I wonder whether that's the, the perfect place to put it. I'd be really interested to hear why Ron just, you know, thought it was worth putting an undacted fan on there rather than uh, on the tail. Ron? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good, it's a good point. Um, I was surprised I put undacted fans on it at all, to be honest with you, Sash. Uh, I historically am not a big fan of the undacted fan for a number of reasons. Uh, it's, it's more complicated. Um, you could put it in the back, like you suggest, except it just makes making, you know, derivatives of the airplane a little more complicated, right? Because then you got to start playing around with center of gravity more. It's, it just makes things trickier. You could do that as an alternative. Uh, my thinking was, however, um, if you put it uh, underneath the wing, 
Um, you have a couple things working in your advantage today that you didn't have almost 30 years ago when the stuff was really looked at before. Uh, you've got much better computational techniques to shape the blades and play with the acoustics. Not that it wouldn't be loud, it would still be loud, but I think you could make it a more acceptable loud. Uh, you've got things like passive and active noise control you could put um, uh, on the cockpit, not on the cockpit, on the, on the fuselage, you know, strategically to help kind of offset some of that today where you just didn't have that before. And so technology has changed. You can take advantage of that. Um, the, the blade out situation, I think you'd have to study, but I think the reality is, unfortunately, when you get a blade out with most anything, uh, bad things happen, uh, even if it's even if the engine is in a, in a nacelle. Uh, we've seen some bad things happen, but that would be a certification hurdle that you you would have to work through. My biggest worry, honestly, with kind of the, the, the platform, how I suggest it should be, it's just customer acceptance. It looks different. You know, people are used to walking up to something that looks like a 737 or an A320. Um, they're not used to flying on a, you know, a large pasture configuration that has a high wing and uh, engines hanging off the wing. Uh, and, you know, that there would be most likely some sort of customer acceptance around that. Then there's also probably some things you have to work through and how you use it at the airport with the jet gates and so on and so forth. And, you know, ideally it'll have a little bit of a higher aspect ratio. I don't know if you need folding wing tips or not. You might, you might not. Um, so there's definitely things you got, you got to work through, but I think your point is a really good one, Sash. Uh, but I, I think hopefully technologies come far enough in terms of engineering design tools that you can do things today that you just couldn't really do 30 years ago. Um, oh, that, that, I, I mean, that, go, go ahead. No, no, I mean, that, 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 that's absolutely fascinating. Um, I thank you for that. If I could just ask one other question, because I mean, it, it's, you know, it's really interesting to, to hear your thought process on this. Whenever, um, uh, you know, engineering organizations do a sort of competition with their young engineers to try to get them to come up with the, the, the aircraft of tomorrow. The Royal Aeronautical Society has been running these sort of competitions, for example, um, over here in the UK for probably nearly a decade now. And these super bright, super keen engineers almost always come up with a blended wing body design and say, this is the most efic efficient, most effective design um, that, uh, you know, that we could offer for the future. Um, your design isn't that. Um, I wonder if you just talk about what, what you saw as the trade-offs. I personally don't believe that blended wing design works until somebody um, either pays for it with government money, which might yet happen, or B, um, uh, can solve the problem of scalability. And I think your, your comments about scalability for a, for a tail-mounted engine uh, configuration are really in interesting. But I wondered you know, whether you, uh, how, how much you looked at blended wing before you decided on this configuration. Um, I, I just want to point out, right, I mean, Jet Zero is, and Northrop Grumman and RTX and the team are actually doing that uh, on that $250 million U.S. Air Force contract, right? I mean, so they are working toward a blended wing body concept, uh, which, uh, again, is is one of those uh, game-changing things. But go ahead, uh, Ron. Yeah, I actually love the blended wing concept. I mean, I, I, I do. I, I Kind of everything you, you said is true. Uh, the disadvantage of doing an aircraft the way we all think about it you know tube with wings and the tail is you know on on one hand a very positive aspect of that is it's very lego-esque you can move things around and you know the tube doesn't talk too much to the wing the wing doesn't talk too much to the tail it's it's all kind of separable if you will from an engineering perspective um with a blended wing body that's not the case right and and the the beauty of a blended wing body becomes the it's a wing the whole thing is flying where when you think about a, a wing and a tube and a tail 
Um, your tail is flying a little bit. The tube does generate some lift, but not a heck of a lot. And then you have a wing, but you've got a lot of the airplane that's actually not flying on a blended wing body for lack of better words. The entire thing is flying. It's super efficient. There's no, I don't think there's any engineer on the planet who would say, you know, a, a blended wing body isn't the most efficient way to carry volume around. Um, so yeah, hands down, I think it's a wonderful idea. Um, I was thinking about this concept for something that you could bring to market sooner. Uh, my gut sense is just on, on a blended wing body, there's just going to be more work required to get something, you know, kind of to market in a reasonable time frame. Uh, and my sense is a blended wing body is probably optimal for a bigger airplane, right? So when you think about future wide bodies, for a future wide body, I think a blended wing body, for a lack of better words, is a no-brainer, right? Because right. you can fly really long distances with a lot of volume, um, and and there's all kinds of advantages there. So I was thinking for an, an aircraft that was, you know, materially smaller than kind of what you think about a very big airplane, um, but but could you could a blended wing a smaller blended wing body maybe applied to kind of this this segment? Yeah, but but again, my sense is it might be a little constraining just because of other factors and and you know how, how you you know scale it up and scale it down and and so on and so forth. Um, but my my goal here was to kind of propose something that you could really start doing in a real way in the next couple of years. And I don't I don't think we're quite there yet with the blended wing body. And hopefully, you know, folks like Jet Zero can bring us much closer to that. And probably the path to do that is down a military path, bringing a tanker to market, that kind of thing, and then and then going from there. That, that's why I ended up with the design I did. Uh, let me, uh, we're going to uh, have to move on. Just a quick word uh, to our audience to check out our weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our Air Power podcast, sponsored by GE Aerospace, that I co host with our very own uh, JJ. Uh, Gertler. Uh, let's uh, shift gears. Uh, we've got a lot to cover and uh, a brief amount of time, so I may be somewhat more targeted in my questions than letting everybody take a bite of this apple. But I have to ask uh, about uh, the revelations uh, in Walter Isaacson's uh, new biography on Elon Musk uh, that uh, says that Musk blocked Ukrainian access to Starlink data, thwarting a major attack on Russia's uh, Black Sea fleet. Uh, the Tesla, SpaceX, and Starlink founder uh, compared the planned Ukrainian attack to Pearl Harbor, and he said he didn't want to be involved in an escalation of the war. Uh, it's his constellation. He can do with it what he pleases, but many are asking what happens if he decides to do that again um, in the future, you know, when the U.S. or NATO uh, forces need to use it, but whatever it is that they want to do conflicts with his personal and business interests, right? I mean, you could see that he's he's tried to mediate and negotiate whether it's you know uh, you know with Putin to resolve uh, the crisis and some comments in China. He's really vested in China. He, he has uh, important business interests, obviously, for Tesla there at a time when the Chinese are stepping up electric uh, car manufacture. Uh, Ron, why don't you start us off? I mean, what does this mean? Or Richard, why don't you start us off? I mean, what does this mean at a time when the department wants to increasingly rely on private commercial firms for key national security services? Senior officials have told me, you know, we do have some safeguards and indemnifications in place, and, and there are no gray areas when it comes to the United States and its allies and partners, whereas this is being furnished as, you know, a, a benefit 
uh, or assistance to the Ukrainians, even though the Pentagon is is covering some of, um, you know, Starlink's, uh, you know, or SpaceX's costs on this. Anyway, I mean, is this problematic and really go around the horn and whether or not it starts to alter the business model that we have, which is we're going to ask really bright commercial people for their products and we're going to use them. You know, Google, as I recall, you know, didn't want to have anything to do with Project Maven and it became a problem. Go ahead. Yeah, you know, I mean, to be glib, it's given the word dystopian a bad name. I mean, this is seriously <laughs> straight out of a, you know, cheesy science fiction novel. You know, sorry, but your ISR network is on the blink because uh, you have to put another quarter in the meter or something. I mean, that's really bad. And, you know, the way, how did we get here? You know, the Pentagon has relied more and more on private service providers for everything from ISR to CQI to, you know, to, to AI to, you know, well, everything, um, because its own resources were constrained here and there. And it was, it just basically said, all right, let's kind of act like a business and uh, return on net assets. And so uh, diminish our own net assets and uh, we'll get better returns. And it was some that was okay, but clearly there need to be a lot more safeguards and a lot more rethinking. What's the read through? Well, yes, as you say, rethink on privatization. I can't help but wonder uh, with AI coming down the pike and so many AI companies, uh, you know, angling for part of that, whether the percentage of resources kept in house maybe needs to shift in favor of the Pentagon. It may be having a completely new area of capability completely privatized and outsourced is maybe not uh, in the public in- interest or seen in, as in the public interest in the wake of these revelations. Uh, so I think there should be, will there be a whole lot of rethink? I don't know. You know, I mean, it, it's it's sort of like program management. If you remember back during the whole future combat systems and system of systems debate, you know, wait a minute, how come these procurement capabilities aren't in the Pentagon? rather than resident at the companies that are tying these networks of systems together. Was anything really done to bulk up the procurement capabilities of the Pentagon? Some, but not much. So I think you'll see a rethink. Will it actually result in the necessary allocation of resources to keep greater capabilities in-house? Maybe that's asking for too much. Uh, interesting. Uh, Ron, uh, your sense on this and uh, Sash, if you're a European and you're watching this, right? I mean, Europeans have wanted to do, you know, uh, yeah, b- 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 private, pri- p- public private partnerships. You know, we saw uh, export control, uh, you know, the head of export control rear itself when the RAF wanted to do an innovative tanker thing. You know, we'll use the tankers when we want to use the tankers uh, and and they can do something else. Uh, but I'll come to you in, in just a second. Ron, I mean, your your sense watching this and watching New Space and, you know, all, all the other guys. And we're going to quickly discuss Andrew, uh as well as Replicator in a minute. But go ahead. Yeah, I mean, it's I mean, I think it's, it's the trade off when you deal with private companies. That said, however, um, the government does have control over licensing and and so on and so forth right so you know it's difficult for a private company just to stick something in space without dealing with the government so in the end you know is it what is it sort of like an eminent domain in space or wherever uh for the government and uh, kind of where you know where, where do you draw the line uh, so my, my my sense is ultimately this is probably just kind of growing pains to figure out if you're going to depend more on uh, private contractors for things like assured access to space, 
in space communications, Earth observation, so on and so forth, that you have to feel out how you're going to set up the rules of engagement with the government and for national security. Um, this is all very new, right? So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's very nascent. So it's just a matter of, I think, a matter of time to figure out um, how to make it all work in everyone's best interest. Sash? I actually slightly disagree with Ron. I don't think this is growing pains. I think this is just policy failure in the U.S. Um, it, uh, you said at the very beginning, um, it's Elon Musk's um, satellite conservation constellation, and he can do what he likes with it. Only the first bit of that statement is true. He can't do what he likes with it. He only operates in space with the explicit and ongoing uh, approval and agreement of the U.S. government. Space. There's no such thing as private sector in space. Um, everybody who operates or sends something into space has to get government approval to launch, government approval right. for the satellites that they occupy, government approval for the uh, bandwidth. But I'm afraid your government has completely dropped the ball on this and failed to enforce this with Elon Musk. Um, so to come back to the European issue, this is nothing to do with uh, private uh, public partnerships, private public partnerships in space uh, in Europe. It's totally understood that the government tells the private sector what to do and when to do it. And the private sector then gets paid for it. But the idea that the private sector can just sort of swan off and say, oh, we're not playing today because we don't terribly like the uh, the country we have to operate over or whatever. No, never, ever happen uh, because uh, the government would come down on them, you know, like a very heavy ton of bricks. Uh, it's only because this is Elon Musk that he's got away with this. And your government has completely fails to exercise their known and existing rights and authorities um i would uh, i would say again i think that there is a sense that the ukraine that ukraine falls in a gap in that uh, uh frame uh and it's unclear right i mean we haven't heard the u.s government's response to it and i suspect that we will hear more uh, at the air force association show uh, about that right i mean u.s folks have told me this is not a challenge for us because we have uh, all the mechanisms in place for this. It's more sort of he's made it available to the, you know, the Ukrainians asked for it. He made it available to the Ukrainians um, and uh, then he he's managed to throttle it a couple of times. Uh, and, you know, this is the most problematic element of it. I mean, he, he hit the off switch uh, at a particularly inopportune time and all of those drones washed ashore. Uh, apparently, if 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 I read him uh, correctly, but it's going to be interesting to see uh, how uh, senior leadership responds to these uh, questions uh, ultimately. Um, because again, I mean, my point is, I mean, it it is his constellation, and he can do with it what it what he pleases. Especially for people who do not fall under, you know, perhaps his existing service agreements and indemnifications and everything else. Uh, it's a different question about whether or not the U.S. Uh, government should have played a more prominent role in engineering that. But I mean, as you all know, the Ukrainians are acquiring capability all around the world from whomever they can acquire capability from, and and you know, the United States government has been sort of as a general rule pretty quick with the okay stamp on things uh just just to make sure that that they go right i mean you know the things that are under extensive review are f-16s and uh you know tackums and things like that whereas whereas the other stuff uh is, is tending to move a little more quickly um let me uh shift gears uh really uh quickly uh ron or richard 
Uh, what do you guys make of the replicator, right? Uh, Deputy Defense Secretary Kath Hicks has unveiled the replicator uh, effort uh, to help the department tap, quote, non-traditional defense suppliers uh, to mass produce what the Pentagon needs, like vast quantities of unmanned systems. Uh, and in, in against that backdrop, uh, why don't you guys take the uh, both, uh, you know, look at the Andrel announcement, uh, right? They acquired uh, Blue Force uh, and through that, uh, the Group 5 Autonomy Fighter uh, that uh, Blue Force uh, was uh, developing and obviously huge implications for uh, the U.S. Air Force's Collaborative Combat Aircraft Initiative, where just about everybody who's anybody is really interested in it. Ron, start us off. Uh, and then Richard, your take, and then Sash uh, have got uh, a DSCI question or two for you as well. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean it's it's a, you know it's exciting to see kind of new platforms and and, and new players. Uh, the Andrel folks, uh, you know, they have uh, a heritage with some of the folks at uh, at Palantir, so they have a you know, point of saying that is maybe a fresh way of thinking about things and approaching things and doing things, and that's that's always you know, good to bring to bear, uh, particularly in the you know the the. The CCA segment, it's going to probably have a lot of companies competing for it. Uh, so it's refreshing to see that. Um, we'll, we'll see ultimately where it goes uh, for a non-airplane OEM to bring forth an airplane. Uh, even in the military, there's a lot of challenges and you don't know what you don't know and so on and so forth. So I wish them, I wish them all the best of, best of luck <laughs> with it, right? I mean, it's, it's not an easy thing, you know, doing hardware. It's not an easy thing doing software either, but hardware has got its own unique set of challenges. And right. um, so, you know, hopefully it is a, you know, a welcome addition to the U.S. stable uh, and helps, you know, boost up competition in an area where it's needed. Richard? Well, you know, there's one thing that um, both the Replicator effort and uh, Blue Fury have in common, which is that they're very interesting developments, exciting developments, as Ron says, uh, but... Uh, ultimately dependent upon artificial intelligence. That is to say, it's, you know, you can build lots of drones and use them as terror weapons the way the Russians have been uh, using them in their inglorious way. Uh, but to make sense of it all, you need AI that allows them to function as a swarm and go after actual targets of value rather than just to terrorize cities and stuff. We're not there yet. It needs to be there. So it's good to get that necessary precondition of some kind of program that allows us to build, you know, hundreds or thousands of these things. But it's the AI. And similarly, you know, yes, CCA has unquestionably got a great future ahead, uh, but it might take time. And the big variable there is AI, because ultimately, if you have just, you know, a relationship between a drone and its crude fighter, then that's a one to one and bigger CCAs. If you have some kind of breakthrough in AI that allows them to function at a greater level of autonomy, um, more of a swarm, then you need smaller and more of them. Uh, so will it be Blue Fury? Will it be Ghost Bat? Will it be Valkyrie? Will it be whatever else that people have come up with in the black world? Um, I don't know. And I think a lot of it depends upon AI. And since we are uh, running out of time, uh, Sash, give us uh, a quick uh, your quick take on what is it you expect to hear at DSCI? Uh, obviously, just like AFA in the United States, this is sort of the flagship British uh, defense show. It's uh, biennial. So uh, once every uh, two years, uh, this is going to be the biggest and best uh, DSCI ever uh, by all accounts. I'm hearing from everybody that it's, it is going to be the best attended uh, event and at a time when uh, Grant Shapps is the new defense secretary uh, and, and still an enormous number of 
uh, both uh, challenges, uh, but also opportunities as uh, Tony Radican, the chief of defense staff uh, and the senior leadership team, uh, uh, whether it's uh, Sir Rich Knighton or Sir Ben Key uh, or uh, Patrick Saunders, right, are all trying to drive change across the British uh, military services. What, what is it you think are going to be the big storylines coming out of London and the Excel Center? Well, I mean, I'd, I'd make a couple of points. Number one, um, unlike AFA or indeed AUSA, DSEI has become a very, very international show now. I mean, it's effectively, uh, you know, on the way to matching or even eclipsing in some respects uh, Eurosatriate um, in uh, Paris. And because it's at least a two service and becoming a, a three service show, it's a it's a very, very big international event. Um, so some of the stories that come out are going to be international. But from a UK point of view, um, Admiral Tony Radikin is going to be doing the hard lifting. Let's be absolutely clear about it. Um, he's chief of defense staff. I think it, what he says matters, but he is uh, going to be accompanied by a, a uh, secretary of state for defense, Grant Shapps, who's been in the job 10 days and who's, you know, basically he's there as a political um, uh, placeholder, but really who's, he's been appointed by Rishi Sunak to, to you know, keep things under lock and key for the, for the next nine to 15 months until the general election. It's very unlikely that he's going to make big policy decisions, big policy announcements. Announcements. Anything of substance is going to come from Tony Radikin and from the service chiefs below him. So they're going to be the people that we'll concentrate on. So, you know, somebody else will have written Grant Shapps's speech and, um, you know, he will have ha he will have been briefed on what to say and how to say it. But I, I think he's far too um, uh, you know, early in the job to have any sort of influence on this show whatsoever. But Tony Radican has a great deal. So the biggest challenge for the UK um, and the UK armed forces is going to be actually delivering what we promised with the forces that we've got and the budget that we've got. Um, uh, you know, there are some very worrying concerns about the state of the UK armed forces, uh, you know, be it manning in the Royal Navy or um, uh, in the, uh, you know, just sheer numbers in the RAF, uh, in the Army and, and the managing of uh, major programs. So we're going to be looking for some signs of comfort on on all of those, frankly. Um, but I think it's very unlikely that we're going to get new policy or new uh, new budget to go with it. Uh, and I, I should point out, right, that uh, DSEI also has become uh, a fascinating cyber uh, IT and technology and space show uh, as well, which does put it into a, a, a bit of a different category uh, with, without being disrespectful to Eurosatory, which is uh, a terrific organization. But, you know, you're at a pier uh, where you can also put a lot of naval uh, capability on the on the side of the key as well, um, and which which also then tucks into a little bit of the business of uh, Euronaval. Uh, which uh, is also a very important French event. Richard, what are your expectations? What are the big messages that you're going to be looking to hear coming out of uh, AFA this year? Well, you know, uh, obviously they'll be looking for news about NGAD, CCA, B21 progress, especially, you know, because, of course, the news continues to be reasonably good. But, you know, with a degree of trepidation about the... Uh, you just jinxed it. Waiting for the other shoe to drop here. Uh, but, you know, obviously positive news flow would be very welcome. Um, F35 progress, you know, what does it look like? What does the production ramp look like? Um, maybe a bit about... T7 in terms of timing and in terms of right. possible adjunct systems, because, of course, the Air Force has been interested in maybe some kind of supplementary uh, fast trainer capability. 
uh, or something along those lines. Um, I think it'll be a really interesting show. Um, you know, obviously heavily dependent upon the next generation of air vehicles coming down the pike and associated uh, news from them. Uh, Ron, anything uh, you want to add in terms of uh, what you're going to be listening for? Yeah, I'm going to be looking at, you know, Secretary Kendall's comments around uh, the new platforms and investments in the new platforms. Uh, and like to, to maybe to uh, echo some of what Richard said, uh, looking for a discussion around, you know, NGAD, uh, maybe how NGAD is going to work with FAXX, so on and so forth. Uh, you've got so much investment going on right now in in platforms with wings. It's it's a it's an a, a an exciting time, b a complicated time. So just trying to divine you know the most I can out of any commentary around that. Uh, got it. Uh, all right, guys. Uh, thanks very much, uh, as always, uh, and uh, very much appreciated. I hope you guys have uh, a terrific uh, evening, a terrific week, uh, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. As always, Vago, great to be here. Looking forward to seeing you at the SCI, Vago. Thanks very much. Yeah, thanks, Vago. Great to be on. Uh, terrific as well. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for joining us as well. And a very special thanks to Bell for their generous sponsorship that makes this program possible. Uh, please tune in to our program tomorrow where Sam Bendett of the Center for Naval Analyses, as well as uh, Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners, uh, joins, uh, uh, join us for uh, a look at the war uh, for an update. It's been a couple of weeks since we've heard from Sam, as well as a look ahead uh, to the rest of the week. Thanks so very much again. Hope everybody has a great day and we'll see you again tomorrow.